Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. So uh, I have the pleasure now of introducing uh, another member of our, our uh, faculty and uh, 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 on top of all that, a wonderful person, uh, Professor Alan Messer. Alan served in the CIA for 32 years, uh, first as an analyst on Soviet defense industries and economics for, the, for 17 years, in the Directorate of Science and Technology for two years, and then as an operations officer in the clandestine service for 13 years, specializing in the KGB and the GRU. He has a master's degree in international affairs from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a master's, uh, and another master's uh, in economics from UCLA. He, at IWP, he teaches a course entitled A Counterintelligence Challenge, The Enigmas and Benefits of Defectors. Alan. Thank you, and oh, here we go. Thank you, and good morning. Um, I'm not going to, uh, in contrast to the cyber people, I'm going to be talking about human beings for the, for the duration of this speech. The title of this speech, Defectors and in Intelligence, was deliberately chosen as a, a double, double entendre. Each term has a double meaning covering both the narrow confines of professional intelligence and the larger society that we live in. We begin with the term defector. In my experience of debriefing defectors, a more personal sense of this phenomenon became apparent. I remember talking with one defector when he was about to move on to a new life. He and his wife were still quite troubled with the shocking transition in their lives. Alone with the two of them at the end of a dinner, I said, you should understand that our country was built by generations of defectors. My own forefathers came over in the mid-18th century having defected from Germany. They had all the belongings they could carry with them on a long seaborne journey to a very strange land with only promised them freedom. Free from the social and economic tyrannies of closed, cramped, parochial cultures. They would never see family or local friends they left behind. The one thing they had was a willingness to rely on themselves in the belief that they could fashion a new life. When you think about it, those who left Europe were self-selected and left behind the vastly more numerous, risk-averse, security-hugging majorities in their former lands. In this first sense, the act of defecting was an act of rejection. While the term traces back to Latin, its modern professional use in English begins with the onset of the Soviet Union. Boris Bajanov had been a personal secretary to Joseph Stalin before he came out in January of 1928 and volunteered to the British in India. At the time, he was viewed variously as a refugee and more suspiciously as a turncoat. 
The incompetence with which he was exploited at the time reflected the simple fact that Western nations had no real experience with this phenomenon. Since that time, there have been numerous defectors, many from the intelligence and security communities of their respective countries, but many in the arts, sports, science, politics, and the military. The motives of some of them reflect those of my forefathers in their odyssey to America, but some do not. Confirming ourselves, or confining ourselves because of my limited personal experience to Russian intelligence types, it must be admitted that the motives for some were rather more mercenary. Some came because they suspected they would receive a substantial government subsidy from the host government and indulge in the luxuries of Western living. The stark contrast between the standard of living in any communist country and the West at that time made this very understandable but posed difficulties all the same. Some had been run as agents in place, as we say. In the CIA, an agent is not a staff officer as it is in the FBI. The agent is a foreign citizen run in place by CIA staff officers. In some cases, most notably the British MI6 agent Oleg Gordievsky in 1985, Defection was a sudden and unexpected escape from the clutches of a suspicious foreign service like the Soviet KGB, hot on the heels of an arrest. But in some of these cases, the defection had occurred much earlier and in place. In Gordievsky's case, he appears to have tempered his values and outlooks so as to be receptive to British recruitment in about 1973. Most defectors had real difficulties adjusting to a new life in the West. One glaring exception was Nikolai Kokloff, a KGB assassin who defected in 1954. After defection, Kokloff obtained a PhD from Duke University in clinical and experimental psychology and taught psychology at Cal State University, retiring as professor emeritus. His exception contrasts with the problem for all the rest. When the wall came down in Germany in October 1989 and East and West were united, there was an obvious difference between the two peoples, even though they shared a language and a common history up to 1945. Easterners for several generations had been marinated in the cradle of the cradle-to-grave welfare system that robbed them of the experience of personal responsibility and self-reliance that their Western brethren had had. Easterners were the counterpart of those my forefathers left behind, only more so. This legacy of dependence and unforeseen consequence of sudden divorce from family, friends, and, and familiar culture made the resettlement experience difficult and sometimes intractable for some Soviet defectors. Clearly the resettlement issue poses a serious challenge involving all the emotion, turmoil, calculation, and unpredictability inherent in dealing with human beings. Western services from the experience with Bajanov up to World War II generally botched the business of resettlement, sometimes with disastrous results. But the war, not intellect, 
taught those services to organize a resettlement beginning with the defection of the GRU code clerk Igor Guzenko in 1945. The rich literature on defection and espionage amply shows that resettlement is essentially a social welfare function that officers practice and a function found in, to some extent with in-place cases. But this is to get ahead of our subject. The defection of a Soviet intelligence officer presupposes the context of intelligence. Again, the doubled entendre. What is intelligent about intelligence? I do not mean to be clever. It is a real question. In this, defectors pose a serious challenge to Western intelligence officers. Here I might focus on the CIA, but the word officer runs the gamut from senior leadership down to the trenches. Focusing for a moment on the narrower question of professional intelligence, the challenge basically is twofold. How to maximize the production of useful intelligence and minimize the unreliability of intelligence. Years ago, the noted author Tom Wolfe observed that it was only when Alexander Solzhenitsyn detonated his hand grenade in 1973 in the form of the Gulag Archipelago that Marxism was finished off in the minds of European intellectuals. Of course, writing in 1996, Wolfe could never imagine the brainless resurgence of Marxism as a religious totem today. But the point is his second observation. Others who were writing about this before Solzhenitsyn, notably Robert Conquest, revealed the same thing, but their work was based largely on testimony of refugees, and refugees were routinely discounted as biased and bitter observers. This skepticism of human source, sources pervades the intelligence business as well, and for good reason. Gaining useful, reliable, and detailed information from, from any human being is a difficult business. To maximize the professional take, you have to know both the questions to ask and the ability to anticipate the long-run utility of the answers. I stress long-run because the modern professional sin is to focus on current headlines, often at the expense of real knowledge. You may be amazed that a single human memory could recall enough to fill up a lengthy schedule of debriefings, but my experience suggests otherwise. One example I point to in my class is the book written by the KGB defector Pyotr Deryabin, who came out in 1954 and subsequently wrote a book, The Secret World, in 1959. This is Deryabin's memory of his own professional life, his many activities in that life, and the wider organization of which he was a part. It is about 300 pages long, and my experience suggests that it is representative of what a human memory is capable of. It does not feed a transient headline, but nourishes a deep knowledge of an adversarial organization, its capabilities, its professional culture, and its practices. But do we have the patience and insightful skill as debriefers today to tease out such an exhaustive story? I'm not so sure anymore. Along with this runs a deeper problem, ensuring the reliability of what we are being told by a defector. 
One professional flaw in debriefing is to, a, to entertain a defector's speculations and analysis, failing to make a rigorous distinction between fact and analysis. This appears to have been the problem with the notorious KGB defector Anatoly Golitsyn, who came out in 1961. He provided a number of what we call CI leads or fragmentary clues of an espionage case, and many of these are what we call in the business unsub leads, or unknown subjects. The lead itself may refer to some fragment of espionage activity, but without the name of the culprit. In any case, he was enticed to offer speculations and analyses in a confusing mixture that set the stage for the most controversial defection in the history of Mer American intelligence. The KGB officer Yuri Nosenko defected in 1964 with a headline-grabbing story. President Kennedy had been assassinated in November 1963 by Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald himself had been a defector to the Soviet Union in an October of 1959 and returned with a new Russian wife in June 1962, making no secret of his continuing sympathies for communism. Almost immediately arose the natural question. Had the Soviets been behind the assassination? Into the breach came Nosenko just over two months later. The timing was Im as impeccable as his messages were controversial. Nosenko claimed he had personally been there when Oswald defected to the Soviets. He had been there when Oswald went back to the U.S. He had been there when the Soviet leadership, in a fit of panic, had demanded the recall of all of Oswald's records in the Soviet Union, along with an analysis of Soviet involvement. The verdict was that the Soviets had not even debriefed Oswald, although he had served in the Marine Corps, and were not involved in Oswald's plot. This is a very long and involved tale, but in my own assessment of the case, I was struck first by the sheer magnitude of the effort to get at the truth and the sheer detail that was persistently elicited from Nosenko over many months. But secondly, as this debate has unwound between CIA officers over the decades, I was struck by some serious analytical deficiencies. First, the issue was framed with only two options. Either he was a legitimate defector or he was deliberately dispatched by the KGB. The partisans of legitimate defection persistently ignored the huge volume of contradictory testimony from Nisenko himself. They facilitated their own evasions by completely ignoring the fact that Nosenko had originally volunteered in 1962, and the primary subject of his reporting then concerned a dozen CI leads that often overlapped and sometimes contradiction what Golitsyn had reported. The confusions produced by Golitsyn and his exploitation did not help. In this light, the contrary argument that Nosenko was dispatched by the KGB was understandable. However, this argument could not cope with four analytical points raised by the partisans of legitimate defection. As a dispatched agent, Nosenko would have been a bad candidate for the job for a variety of personal and psychological reasons. Second, his own performance under interrogation belied any professional preparation for this assignment. Third, KGB practice followed the notion that it would be imprudent in the extreme 
to have to an officer defect because the KGB could never guarantee that the officer would spill all kinds of secrets accumulated over a long career. Finally, had the Americans definitively concluded that Nosenko was dispatched, the exposure of Soviet intentions have had uh, tensions could have had unforeseen and dangerous consequences. A notion that consumes all the evidence and deals with the analytical objections would postulate that Nosenko was dispatched to Geneva to deliver his message in much the same way as he had in 1962, and that also required his return to the Soviet Union. But in 1964, seeing the golden opportunity for a lucrative resettlement in the United States, Nosenko defected himself, although he was thoroughly unprepared for the consequences. The point of this story is really not about Nosenko, but about his reception. In the beginning, officers in the CIA behaved thoroughly professionally conducting patient debriefings and conducting skilled logical analysis afterwards. However, the continuing enigmas opened the door for doubts and executive politics ultimately intervened to drive the debate. Throughout the case, both professional skills and intellectual dishonesty were often at war. And this is the potential danger in any intelligence operation. The outcome of the war between these two defines the quality of an intelligence apparatus. We rarely get a good optic on the performance of intelligence, and when we get a glimpse, it may often be the tip of a more insidious iceberg beneath. A few more recent clues suggest the war is not going well. The curveball case is important because it is one of the few revelations of our current professional dereliction. An Iraqi defector codenamed Curveball came out and volunteered to the German BND in 1999. His claim to fame was that he had worked in the Iraqi WMD program, specifically on the development of mobile biological production trailers that could manufacture biowarfare agents. Again, it is a long and detailed story, but several salient features address our themes here tonight. The primary professional deficiencies were exhibited by the German BND. He was debriefed for 21 months, ending in September 2001. He was also debriefed by a 13-man team of analyst experts supervised by an operations officer. All of this suggested a high degree of professionalism. However, Curveball's veracity began to unwind almost from the start. Contrary to its own doctrine, the BND allowed Curveball to evade the BND's own guidelines at the very beginning by failing to provide clear answers regarding his own unexplained eight-month eight -month journey from Iraq to Germany and issues about his own mysterious finances. After his first dump of detailed descriptions of the trailers and the development process itself, his explanations began to fall apart under repetitive questioning. The technique was reasonable, but the German gullibility in the face of backtracking and numerous contradictions belied the professional intent. Throughout the case, Curveball was never subjected to a polygraph, and almost, at almost all the time, the Germans were not being forthcoming about the contradictions. Meanwhile, American analysts had fallen in love with the reporting itself. They had almost nothing else to go on and were driven to provide any conclusion other than, I don't know.
Being a defector, Kerbal should have been much more vulnerable to skeptical interrogation as was Nisenko, but the American analyst can be forgiven a bit because Kerbal was in the hands of a foreign liaison service. In the end, nothing could save the German service or even the American services from professional dereliction. Curveball was just the precursor of a more widespread and institutionalized intelligence scandal known as the Iraq Survey Group, or ISG. This was formed in the immediate aftermath of the onset of the Iraq War in the spring of 2003 in an effort to determine the nature and extent of the Iraq program for weapons of mass destruction. The pervasive post-war cliche that WMD never existed served as camouflage for the utter incompetence of the ISG. When the pervasive and often deliberate looting left American intelligence with a dearth of tangible evidence on the ground, it was left to human sources to probe the issue. These were not strictly speaking defectors, but rather prisoners of war. In this first large post 9-11 exercise in collaboration and sharing, the intelligence community exhibited a breathtaking degree of incompetence. Prisoners were held in common detention camps where they were free to compare stories about their debriefings and tailor their testimony to avoid conflicts. As with Curveball, the great mass of debriefers were reportedly experts in their field, but flown in for two to three week tours, interviewing multiple sources at a time. There was a continuity, there was no continuity, and clearly no effort made at asset validation. The most prominent non-expert was an Arabic-speaking FBI agent charged with being the sole debriefer of Saddam Hussein himself. While the ISG report brags about the importance of these extended debriefings, a careful scrutiny of the ISG report itself would reveal that nothing Saddam may have said about specific WMD programs was ever used as evidence in its report. Saddam's contribution was zero. Anyone with real professional experience at debriefing would readily recognize all the deficiencies in the program as documented by the annex of the ISG's report itself. In any case, Curveball and the ISG affair were dangerous paragons, were paragons of intellectual achievement compared to a more recent case. Over the course of three years from 2016 through 2018, or, 18. We were subjected to the spectacle of the Steele dossier memo and the intelligence community assessment of January 2017. Neither one of these refers to a defector, but they reveal too much about the degenerating mentality of an American intelligence establishment that is only waiting for another curveball to screw up. The infamous Steele dossier tortured American politics and dominated the headline Russian collusion issue for several years. More importantly, it reflected professional incompetence at best or corruption at worst. Christopher Steele had been an MI6 officer and was engaged in private political intelligence when he came in contact with the FBI in July of 2016. Now, the entire Russian collusion affair is exceedingly complex and can feed conclusions in many different directions, but several features bear on the question of how intelligent is intelligence. The very first report in the dossier focused on two sources of information. The first one, called Source A, 
was said to be a senior figure in the Russian foreign ministry. This source claimed that the Russians had been feeding valuable intelligence for several years to Trump on Trump's opponents. The second source, called Source B, was a former senior Russian intelligence officer still active inside the Kremlin. He reported that Director Kay of the Russian FSB had been compiling a dossier of compromising material called Kompromat in KGB jargon on Hillary Clinton for many years. This comprised mainly eavesdropping conversations, some from bug comments she made she had made on her previous trips to Russia and focused on things she had said which con contradicted her current positions on various themes. How much of the controversy over the dossier pivoted on whether various statements in it could be corroborated was, was the essential thrust of people's examinations. In the words of Deputy Chief of the FBI Counterintelligence Division, the FBI had sought to prove or disprove every single assertion in the dossier. But in fact, some of the evidence was staring them and everyone else right in the face. Steele used what we in the business would call a principal agent or cutout to communicate with the sources who were in Moscow. This man later identified as Igor Donchenko was apparently still a Russian citizen, though he had lived in the United States since at least 2003, attending school and developing himself as a think tank type of political analyst. Traveling back to Russia on several occasions. Donchenko claimed to have a wide circle of relationships that provided him with the intelligence he provided to Steele, who was the employer at the time. Now think about what Steele was reporting. An active senior Russian foreign ministry official living in Moscow is revealing what the Russians would consider state secrets to someone who is simply a friend and who occasionally traveled back to Russia from his residence in the United States. Then there is source B, a former senior intelligence officer who was still employed in the Kremlin itself, who also provides state secrets regarding the sources and methods used to fill a dossier of compromise on a then US presidential candidate. And neither one of them had been recruited and were not paid. Does this even pass the smell test? The deputy chief of the FBI Counterintelligence Division subsequently told the Justice Department Inspector General that the FBI, quote, understood that the information in the dossier could be inaccurate. Could? The FBI also understood that the information, quote, could be embellished or exaggerated. Again, could? Did the FBI ever draw a real conclusion? After having dealt with Steele for over three months, the FBI determined in early October 2016 that Donchenko was the cutout, but waited for almost four months before interviewing him directly, beginning on the 24th of January 2017. Testifying to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in August 2020, the FBI failed to note that Donchenko had contradicted himself on the question whether he had contacts with anyone associated with Russian security, 
When he was asked about using other friendships as sources of information, Donchenko, quote, balked, meandered in the conversation, and did not really answer the question, unquote. The FBI interviewer did not press either issue and admitted that he deliberately did not press the second one. Just what professional standards was this deputy chief following in running an intelligence source in which his own counterintelligence division could admit, admit that it, quote, understood that some parts could be true and other parts false, unquote. And yet the FBI director briefed the president and the vice president on this dossier on the 5th of January and President-elect Trump the following day. These briefings transpired about two and a half weeks before the interviews of Donchenko. The vulnerability of the American intelligence community was clearly on display at this point. The deputy chief of the FBI counterintelligence division had also said to the Justice IG that the FBI, quote, understood that the information could have been provided by the Russians as part of a disinformation campaign. Could? Here is an issue that is utterly absent from any official records. On the very same day that President-elect Trump was briefed by the FBI director on the Steele dossier, the intelligence community issued an assessment that Russian President Putin had ordered up a political influence campaign in 2016 to denigrate presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and support Trump. Curiously missing from the unclassified version released to the public was a footnote acknowledging that the IC had access to the full steel dossier, but because of limited corroboration, chose not to use it in its own analytical conclusions. Had it done so and entertained the notion that it was Russian disinformation, its conclusion would have been drastically different. What makes this conclusion so alarming is the terrible vulnerability of the intelligence community. The sheer gullibility of the IC was notable throughout the case, as was its utter lack of standards for vetting assets who could be judged to speak both true and false. Is this what we're paying for? In what way does this differ from the conduct of the average journalist? Apart from this, Steele's own operational posture offered dramatic opportunities for disinformation. Whether Donchenko himself was an FSB agent or not, the Russians were in a perfect position to lay on him tailored messages called Chema in KGB jargon. In the first place, the information was coming to Steele both second and third hand, so interrogation of subsources was impossible and should remind us of precisely this vulnerability in the curveball case. Secondly, Donchenko admitted to the FBI in his own interview that, quote, attempts at getting corroboration on these subjects made him uncomfortable. He was nervous about the Russians finding out about it. Clearly, Donchenko was admitting that he and his subsources were violating state secrecy. Thirdly, the FBI was notably lacking in elementary curiosity during its debriefings of Donchenko. He said that one of his trips to Russia in 2016 was quote unquote odd, in that this was the only time he was detained by border guards and peppered with questions as to who he was meeting with and what was he planning to do. Donchenko claimed he kept his answers vague, 
But this implies that he was dodging the specific questions and the Russian authorities were gullible enough to swallow it. The FBI never followed up by cross-examining his story. Likewise, in speaking about a subsequent trip to Russia in 2016, Donchenko claimed he was quote-unquote alarmed because of quote, how perfectly it all went, unquote. Nothing bad happened. This cried out for cross-examination as to how it had not gone well previously or why he should be alarmed over a perfectly conducted visit, but the FBI never followed up. Finally, the FBI had chosen to delay an examination of Donchenko directly for over two weeks after it briefed the president-elect and after the IC issued its assessment. The dereliction was palpable. These comments fail to reflect the full array of political agendas accompanied by deceits, deceits by omission, and deceits by invasion and distraction that pervade the entire affair. Much of this may appear irrelevant to the more narrow issue of professional competence, but perhaps not. What is so professionally intolerable is that we were warned over 75 years ago in a lessons learned study about the latent dangers in any intelligence bureaucracy that should be scrupulously policed. The British had developed the most pervasive and durable double agent network in the history of the world in World War II. Most notably, the network was able to feed disinformation to the German Abwehr that caused lethal damage to the German war effort. In this regard, the German intelligence service became a lethal weapon against the very government that sponsored it. Successfully running 120 double agents against the Germans, the British program raised the important question as to why the Abwehr never tumbled onto it. The author of the study, John Masterman, met this question head on, noting that the German service was known to be quite capable at running agent operations, had a good grasp of tradecraft and agent psychology. But in one respect, and in one respect only, the British enjoyed the prevailing advantage. This was the honesty of every officer in the British program from top to bottom. In contrast, Abwehr officers were corrupted by the prospects for promotion and cushy assignments and turned a blind eye to even the most egregious clues that something was wrong. If the Abwehr as an institution reminds us of flagrant practices of the American intelligence community, it should. But even the episodic iceberg tips should give rise to a suspicion that something deeper is going on in this country. As a drill sergeant in basic training reminded us, those of us who were in basic training, uh, who would be very critical of the Army in the Vietnam era, the Army was a reflection of the society from which it drew its recruits. Likewise, the staff of intelligence organizations reflects the society, and particularly the educated society, from which it draws its ranks. What is so disturbing today is that the feedstock for staff in the intelligence business increasingly resembles the ones left behind by my forefathers. We are Europhying America in its values at the same time that we are mortifying our intellect from a largely dysfunctional education establishment. 
You can rest complacent in the technological achievements of our economy and the intelligence establishment, but those achievements have left our understanding of human nature and its history in the dust. In my own course at IWP on the subject of vectors, I seek to minimize the reading load in favor of an exhaustive Socratic method in class. I do not lecture, but rather challenge students to think about what they have read throughout a three-hour cross-examination. Students have noted to me repeatedly that it was the first time in their student career they had been taught to think. Along the way, I emphasize the moral content of professional behavior and the importance of historical memory. I have often noted that a prominent characteristic of all the best intelligence officers I have ever known was a passion for seeking the closest approximation to the truth. That is for the best. And then there is the rest. Without a moral content, even the best education only conveys a technique and not a true passion for truth. Is intelligence intelligent? I must confess that I am very pessimistic about both our society as a feedstock and the intelligence establishment itself. In this regard, IWP stands somewhat apart from the dismal run of pseudo-liberal education in the United States, but I fear it is only the proverbial Dutch lad with his finger in the dike. Any questions or are we done? Okay. Yeah, oh yeah, I'll be around, sure. Sure. No questions. Okay. <laughs> I just, oh, I got one here. Has the state of the intelligence community affected um, the ability of our intelligence agencies to work with foreign governments? I mean, do they trust us still like they did in the past? Well, I don't have any direct knowledge. Um, but, you know, these people abroad are not dumb. I mean, you know, people forget um, the brilliance of Al-Qaeda in 9-11. I mean, as a tactical operation, it was absolutely brilliant. Everything about it, I could enumerate all the features of it. Okay, and, and those are people in Afghanistan. Th these are not sophisticates in Europe or Asia or whatnot. You know, and, and I have to believe that ultimately you do this and you damage your reputation. I mean, you can't not damage your reputation. So, you know. One more. Yes, sir. So, I thought you said you weren't going to scare us, so this is way more scary <laughs> no, than No, I didn't cyber. say that. that <laughs> the, the question for you is, could you elaborate a little bit more Could about, you drop your mask? <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, the question for you is about, the, you said there are two problems with the feedstock. One's the bad education system, the other is the urifying aspect of it. So what are the aspects of eurification that you're referring to here? Um, I think one of the things that I've found uh, degenerate, and this, this is a comment about what I've experienced in life, 
is the utter erosion of, the, the, of our belief in personal responsibility, for one thing. I mean, remember, the Europe that my forefathers came from were serfs, largely serfs, uh, and they did what the Duke told them to do. And I mean, you know, they, they didn't have a capacity to exercise uh, any personal initiative. And that's the other thing, that the people who came here from Europe selected themselves and threw themselves into the world, okay, to struggle on their own. Everybody else they left behind didn't, okay? That was the major uh, fault line between the two, okay? Today, we are dependent, we've become overly dependent on our government, on our parents, on you name it, and, and that's compounded by an educational system that teaches kids not to think. Now, that's an American thing. It's not a European thing. But, but this lack of initiative, this lack of personal responsibility, it's, it's after a while you, you just throw up your hands. And, it, and it's being nurtured, positively nurtured, by government, schools, and not a few parents. So.